Second Kings 13. You know, there are some parts of the Bible that just hit different at different points in your life. You know, you read through it as a younger believer, you know, a new believer. You know, it's not quite the same as, you know, you're going through new challenges, new things. And chapter 13 is so interesting. You know, when I was a, a younger believer, I, you kind of recognize, all right, man, I, I got I to gotta overcome. I'm in the battle. And you kind of get, you know, a bit of an edge to you, you know. You're learning things, right? And now you're dangerous, right? You know, I know stuff. And you're in a conversation like, that's not right. And you're kind of in like battle mode. You know, you're kind of, you know, in that because you are. You're, you're fighting each day for your life because the enemy's trying to go, uh-uh, you're not going to grow. When I was a younger believer, you know, I'd you know, hear the truth and be like, oh, yeah. You know, and you're going for it in your own life. But some of those deeper things like the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, they're kind of, yeah, I know, I know. But, and then as you get older and you realize, man, I'm, I lose more battles than I win. <laughs> you know, the enemy's tough. And I don't have so much, as much figured out as I thought I did. And, you start leaning into the grace of God and the goodness of God and the love of God. And this chapter is kind of one of those where the author is just kind of hammering out, hey, they're getting it wrong, and oh, here they got it right. And, and this is kind of one of those chapters where you just see so much that's wrong, and you know, the goodness and the grace of God, just it just shines so brightly through it. And when we come to chapter 13, we swap back to the northern kingdom, and we pick up the aftermath of Jehu's reign. Because of Jehu's uh, role in bringing about Ahab's judgment, God promised him that his descendants would reign to the fourth generation. But it's only to the fourth generation because Jehu didn't follow the Lord. And, and so not only does Jehu not follow the Lord, but the nation after Ahab's gone and the influence of Baal is gone, Israel, they don't really follow the Lord either. And so God is disciplining not just Jehu, but Jehu's people during his reign by allowing Haziel, Syria's new king, to capture the entire Transjordan region. That's the land that the two and a half tribes have on the other side of Jordan. And so by the time that Jehu finally dies, he has a very long reign. But when he dies and his son Jehoiaz takes the throne, things are not good in Israel. They're, they're bad. And so chapter 13, verse 1, we're into that context. It's rough to be an Israeli right now. It says, In the three and twentieth year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned 17 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He did not depart therefrom. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, all their days. And Jehoahaz sought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Israel oppressed them. And the Lord gave Israel a Savior, so they went out from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before time. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel a sin, but they walked therein, and there remained the grove also in Samaria. There's more, but we'll 
go through these verses first. And in verses 1 and 2, it gives us kind of a summary of Jehoahaz's reign. It says that he started to reign in the 23rd year of Joash, king of Judah. So this is around the same time that Joash took the repair job away that we studied last Sunday night, took the repair job away from the priests and the Levites, 2 Kings 12.6. And he said, no, you guys aren't getting the job done. We're going to get some professionals in here. And he says he reigns for 17 years, which is also interesting because it means he dies the same year that King Joash in Judah dies. Tells us in verse 2 that he perpetuated the golden calf worship system set up by Jeroboam. And the, the author says he did that which was evil in God's eyes because of this. The author, it's interesting, every single king we come to, he keeps pointing out this failure. And if the author keeps pointing it out, it means it's important to him that his readers hear it over and over again, which of course means that it's important for the Lord <laughs> for us to hear it over and over again. He, the Lord wants us to understand how serious this failure was. If you're a student of the history of believers, whether it's Israel's history in the Scripture and then church history, you will note patterns, revival, flourishing, strength, compromise, decay, weakness, crying out to the Lord, revival, and then you go through the cycle again. Every generation of Christians faces the danger of trying to engage our culture without creating a church culture or a Christian worldview that suits ourselves. We all face it. Every generation of Christians faces it. The church in the United States right now is struggling with this. What, what is our role? What is our place? You know, on the, on the one hand, you have churches and Christian-based organizations that have made their ministries about promoting vaccines, LGBTQ issues, uh, Black Lives Matter, things like this. And if you don't support those things, then you're not a good Christian or you don't love people like Jesus did. Then on the other side, you have churches or Christian organizations that have made their ministries about promoting patriotism, capitalism, constitutionalism, don't get the vaccine, etc., etc. And if you don't support those issues or organizations that support such things, you clearly aren't in the truth and you don't love Jesus. But being a Christian has nothing to do with what either side has made it about. It doesn't. In fact, some of those things on both sides, Christ directly opposes. Sometimes people get shocked, and I'll tell them, I say, you realize Jesus is not going to run a democracy. You won't get a vote. You understand that, right? Tyranny! The good kind! And so, when we look at our own struggles, I think sometimes we read the Bible and we don't see our own struggles there. We read a section like this, and we say, oh, yeah, there it is, the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, again, again, again. Why can't they learn? Why can't they learn? Let's just pause for a second. It would be incredibly easy for a patriotic Israeli to support the golden statue system of worship. Very easy. Because if, if you were an Israeli, remember, northern kingdom Israeli, okay, you're not a part of Judah, the southern kingdom. If you were to propose not worshiping where the golden calves were, that would label you as pro-Judah or pro-David. I can hear the argument. Why, why are we going here? Like, we should probably go down to Jerusalem. That's where God told us to go. And these, this is not an accurate representation. God said, make no graven image. Oh, really? You're one of those. 
So you're telling me you're ready to go crawling back to David's descendants after they treated us the way we did? Remember our forefathers? We broke away from them. Aren't you a loyal Israeli? Don't you realize how many wars we fought with them over the years? How could you even consider going to Jerusalem to worship? And I get why the northern kings maintained this policy. It's not that their reasons are irrational. I see it in my own humanity. But their reasons are unbiblical. And God, that's why he repeatedly tells them, this is wrong. I told you how to worship in my word. I don't care how much sense this makes. I don't care how patriotic you are. This is what I told you to do. There's a greater issue in the northern kingdom here than patriotism or loyalty or even good politics. There's more at stake because they're either going to obey God or not obey God. And that's, that's the author's point when he keeps bringing this up. Every king had that choice to make, and every one of those kings chose to not obey God. Now, it's funny when you read First and Second Kings, you think to yourself, he's writing to exiles from Judah. Why is he telling the story of the northern kingdom? It's not their story. Like if you go to First and Second Chronicles, you can clearly tell that he's got a Judean audience because he hardly mentions the northern kingdom at all. So why is this guy who's writing to the same audience, why is he bringing up the entire history of a people that they weren't even attached to? And the reason is, is because they'd made the same wrong decisions that the northern kingdom did. They were in Babylon because they'd made those same choices. But there's a difference. Unlike these long dead kings, they still had time to turn it around. Which means when we approach these passages, it can be easy when it's repetitive to like this, to just kind of be like, oh yeah, that's right, they kept doing that. But when we see something like that over and over again, that means we need to ask ourselves the same question. Is there something that God keeps putting his finger on in your life that you've kept saying over and over again, no God, that won't work? Is there anything like that in your life? Maybe it's about tithing or being generous to others. Maybe it's about an inappropriate relationship. Maybe it's a devotion to something that isn't really worthy of Christ or your time. Whatever it might be, let it not be said of us. Did evil was in the eyes of the Lord because they just wouldn't say yes to God with this. Let it not be said of us that we kept on refusing to obey. Well, God had promised Israel in the law that he would up the level of discipline if they didn't respond to the current level of discipline. And that's what verse 3 describes. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He's angry because he was disciplining them and they weren't responding. And so he says, I'm going to up the level. And so he delivered them, it says, into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria. Haziel invades now, not just, he's already conquered the Transjordan. Now he invades across Jordan. And it says here that all their days he was victorious. Haziel fights against Israel now on on the other side of Jordan, and Israel continues to lose battles, continues to lose land to Syria. We saw last week that Haziel had succeeded in taking his army so far into Israel that he actually was also able to invade Judah. And so when we get to the point of verse 4, things are so bad in Israel that the king sees no hope of survival. 
interesting dichotomy here. Probably wouldn't have sat well with those Judean exiles. But what was Joash's reaction to such dire straits? I'm going to rob the temple and pay off Hazael to go away. He never cries out to the Lord for mercy. Interestingly, the wicked king does. Look at verse 4. And Jehoahaz besought the Lord. Interesting word in Hebrew. It means to make a request or to seek favor, but with a nuance to it. It means that with the focus on an attitude of humility, an attitude that's not demanding or commanding. In other words, he doesn't come to God and go, God, why do you let this happen? This isn't right. It's not fair. I don't understand what you're doing. None of that's going on here. He just comes to the Lord and he's like, please, please, we, we don't have any other options. It's bad. No accusations, no negotiations, just a cry for help. And note what effect his genuine humility has in the Lord. It says, the Lord hearkened unto him, for he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. James chapter 4, verse 6. What does it say? James chapter 4, verse 6. Peter echoes these words a little differently, but he says the same thing. But in James 4, 6, but he gives more grace, which is why he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. I knew as a young man who was struggling with his faith that God loved me, kinda. Like I knew it, like the idea of it. I knew it doctrinally, God is love, right? I did not believe, I couldn't see, I couldn't cross over to that God still thought that way about me, felt that way about me when I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. This verse wrecks me. Doesn't say he repented. Doesn't say he started walking with the Lord. In fact, the Bible tells us it's the exact opposite. And yet the Lord hearkened unto him. God is often described as harsh, uncaring, or aloof. But if we choose to derive our understanding of God from Scripture, He can't be any of those things. He is like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, looking to show mercy, looking to help. The moment that this king humbled himself, wicked king humbled himself to cry out to the Lord. God responded because he saw all the difficulties that the people were going through due to their sin. Saw all of it. When Hagar fled into the desert because of Sarai's harsh treatment, it'd be easy to read a, a story like that in the Bible and be like, where's God in that? I mean, yeah, I mean, she had her issues. She was, got all high and mighty because she had a kid and Sarah couldn't. But still, I mean, like, where's God in this? She's out in the, in the desert, going to die. It would be easy to think that when we look at the situation. But Hagar's conclusion is very different. The Lord comes to her. He says, Hagar, go back to your mistress. God, you're, you're being a jerk. Like, why would you 
Why would you tell her to go back to a situation where someone's oppressing her? Someone's being hor- treating her horribly. Go back. I've got a plan for you. I've got a plan for the child. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to make them a great nation. Go back and trust me. In Genesis 16, 13, Hagar says this. And she called the name of the Lord that spoke unto her, Thou God who sees me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that sees me? God always sees. He always knows. And even when he disciplines or judges, it's always with a broken heart. It's with a desire to show mercy that he waits. Why doesn't discipline? Maybe you've had an experience like that where you just, you really blew it and you're like, oh man, the hammer's going to fall now, like the Lord's going to deal with me. And then it doesn't. And you think to yourself, okay, what was that? The wrong conclusion, of course, maybe it's not that big a deal, or maybe God doesn't see. He always sees, He always knows. Because He longs to show mercy, He waits, looking for any reason to not give us what we deserve. Now, that means that if God is disciplining us, it's because it's for our good right? There's no other option that's better for us. It's what we need to escape even worse consequences, right? If we keep going down that path. So God disciplines us to get our attention just like He does with the king here. And so God doesn't only hear this wicked king's request, but He, he acts on it and He provides help. Look at verse 5. And the Lord gave Israel a Savior so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians and they were able to go back into their tents. Apparently they had fled into the hills, left their homes, and they were able to go back home. The Bible doesn't tell us who the Savior is. During Jehoahaz's reign though, the Assyrian king, Adad-Nirari III, he attacked the Syrian capital twice in three years. Both times, the Syrians were horribly defeated and forced to enter into a tribute agreement with the Assyrians. It's very possible that this was the Savior the writer speaks of because his victories at Damascus would enable Israel to drive out whatever Syrian force was left behind to occupy Israel. Syria could not fight a battle on two fronts, and so they were bringing troops back up to fight against Assyria. And that allowed Israel to drive whatever occupying force remained, and the people were able to return to their homes and live in relative safety. A person doesn't have to be a believer for God to use them to rescue His people. I know sometimes that's hard. We think, well, why why would God use that person? They're, They're wicked. God loves His people. That doesn't make them a good person. doesn't make them saved. They're simply the tool that God uses in spite of their wickedness. I think that's, it's possible that this is why the author doesn't name the Savior. They were not example to be followed. They were not someone to look up to if it was this Assyrian king. The sad story, of course, is verse 6, that they, 
this did not bring repentance to the nation. They all come home and they go back to living how they were. Nevertheless, verse 6, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who made Israel sin, but walked therein. Oh, and by the way, it says there also remained this grove in Samaria. Now, earlier it mentions that the king did evil in the sight of the Lord because he didn't deal with these golden statues. But now it mentions the people walked in it. So it's not just the king's fault. They continued to conduct their worship in these sites to these golden calves that they called the Lord. They called it the Lord. If you remember back to King Jeroboam, when he became king and the tribes broke away, he became deeply concerned. You know what? They're going to go down to Jerusalem three times a year to worship, and they're going to go, you know, David wasn't so bad. And then they'll kill me and go back. And he said, that, that's not going to work. And so he brought out an old heresy. Remember when Aaron was out there in the desert and Moses was up in the mountain and 40 days are going by and they don't know what's happened? He didn't, we know he didn't go up there with enough food for 40 days, 40 nights, food and water. What are we going to do? Where do we go? Aaron, you got to tell us what to do. And he, of course, said, bring all your jewelry and had the golden calf constructed. And what did Aaron say? Behold, the God jibber-jab, you know? No, he said, behold, the Lord your God, which has brought you out of Egypt. Same name but not biblical. Jeroboam, when he became king, he revived that old heresy. And he said, you know, they've not been doing it right in Jerusalem this whole time. In fact, the people of Judah, this is a new way to worship the Lord they've come up with. The most ancient way that we used to worship the Lord was the way Aaron taught us. And that was what he did. Brought up these golden calves, and one up in Dan, and then one in the south of his territory in Bethel. And he said, this is the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. We're going to worship here. We're not going to Jerusalem. And the people, they went right back to that. In addition, there was this grove. Uh, a grove is a worship center to the goddess, Canaanite goddess of fertility and sexual pleasure, Asherah. She was Baal's consort, so wherever Baal showed up, she usually followed. Ahab built this site during his reign, and it appears that while Jehu purged the Baal worshipers from Israel, he never got rid of this. And so the fact that Jehoah has left it there too, and the people used it also displeased the Lord. I read this, and I think to myself, why would Israel continue to do these wicked things after God rescued them? And then, of course, you shut up, right? Because you just go, you know, I get it, Lord. No further questions need to be asked. But I think the bigger question that hits me when I read this is I go, God, why did you help them if they'd never repented? It's a good question. There can only be one answer. It's a beautiful answer. God is more merciful and gracious than we can imagine. He is so good. He is so kind, even when we aren't repentant. It's His kindness that leads us to repentance. I remember I heard a message at school. It was on Galatians, and it was titled, The Illegalization of Legalism. And it rocked my world. This pastor named Greg Denham, he's still out in California, pastor in a Calvary Chapel out there, and he said this. He said, God wants to forgive you and use you the moment right after you blow it. I heard that and I could not receive it. 
I just did not compute. How is that possible? How is that possible? That doesn't compute, Lord. I, I like, I don't. I gotta. I have to somehow like make up for it first, right? I've gotta, I've gotta cook for a bit again, right? I, I need to go back into the pot. And the reason I struggle with that is because I didn't understand the character of God, and I didn't understand my position in Christ. God is so good. He is so kind. Now, is that a license to sin? Of course not. Of course not. I mean, I remember talking to a pastor and I said, I asked him, I said, why don't you teach about these things? I said, you, you talk about obedience. This is great stuff. I said, why don't you talk about this? He said, if I did that, my church would go crazy. I said, you're wrong. You're wrong. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And while the majority of Israel never repented, I'm sure some did as a result of this kindness. So really the question becomes this, which group will we belong to when God shows us mercy? Right? Which group will we belong to? I'm aware, obviously not fully, I won't be until I get to heaven, but I'm aware of holiness and the righteousness of God. I, I understand the importance of obedience. But no, no amount of exhortation to be obedient has moved me in the same way as God's mercy has. It's the truth. So which group will we belong to when God shows us mercy? Will we resist it and say, it can't be true? Or will we just keep persisting in our own sin? Or will we receive it and just get up and walk with them again. Now, because they didn't repent, God didn't restore everything back to the way it was. Israel was still very weak and would remain so for a while. Look at verse 7. Neither did he leave of the people to Jehoaz, but 50 horsemen and 10 chariots. I'm pretty sure the city of Sanford has more than that. So why is he talking about the bad mouth in the city of Sanford? I live in Sanford. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and had made them like the dust by threshing. Just a century earlier, Ahab had commanded an army that killed 100,000 Syrians. I don't think he did that with 10 chariots. Now the Israeli army really was simply a large police force. This left them very vulnerable. See, when King Haziel came down, you remember when Elijah went to go anoint King Haziel and he started crying, remember? And Haziel's like, why are you crying? because I know what you're going to do to my people. The word here destroyed, it means to seek to exterminate, annihilate, wipe out. Haziel didn't just have a, a grudge with Israel or a beef with, you know, it wasn't this a land, he, a land dispute. He wanted to wipe out Israelis. And he was very successful on that path. He had threshed them, it says. He had combed every inch of Israel with a desire to wipe this people out, and he'd almost succeeded. Verse 8 and 9. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria and Joash his son reigned in his stead. It talks about his might, his accomplishments here. Jehoahaz was considered a good king by his people. I mean, 
under his reign, they had come out from under the oppression, and, and he was kind of cheered. It's like, all right, good job. But the Lord did not see him as a good king. And I can tell you this, one of those opinions is far more important than the other. Verse 10, we now get to his son, Joash. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, began Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. This is where it can get a little confusing. Israel and Judah now have a king named Joash, both of them, at the same time. Now, the author makes it worse by swapping to call the northern king Jehoahash, but just for this verse. Right when we get down to verse 12, he's going to call him Joash again. So, like, you read this, and you'd be like, who is who? We'll talk when we get to heaven. Why did you do that? But this situation only exists for three years because the king of Judah is assassinated. We read about that last week. And so maybe that's why he changes the name. It's likely that when King Joash of the north became king, he took the royal name Jehoash to separate himself. And then maybe after Joash died, he went back to using the old name. I don't know. The idea, though, is, is there is a t- an attempt here to alleviate the confusion. For me, it, it only confused me more, but I'm simple. So, Verse 11, here's a summary of his reign. It says, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, but he walked therein. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and his might wherewith he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Joash slept with his fathers. And his son Jeroboam, this is not the same, different Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, sat upon his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Interesting, it mentions him real briefly, and it mentions two things, all his might, so he had a bunch of accomplishments, and then it mentions the wars he fought with the new king of Judah, Amaziah. Now, these wars were instigated by Amaziah in disobedience to God. Amaziah had, uh, his forefathers had lost control of the Edomites, and he went down and fought against the Edomites, and he whooped them, and he was feeling pretty good about himself. And so, when you know the situation in Israel, they're vulnerable. They've been wrecked by the Syrians. And he thinks, you know what? We're going to bring these 10 tribes back home. We're going to fix this mess. And so he sends a note up to King Joash in Israel, and he says, come on out and fight. We're going to end this here. But Joash and his smaller army whooped the Judeans. And so because of his victory over Judah at a time when they were completely outnumbered and they thought they were going down, That caused his people to see him as a good king, buried alongside all the other kings who came before him. But what's God's estimation of him? He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord because of this idolatry. You see, this was a large part of the northern kingdom's problem. They treated God's mercy as evidence that what they were doing was okay. They didn't respond correctly to mercy. They quickly forgot God's discipline when something went well, and then they would just stay the course in the bad way. And that's what I believe the reason is that the the author of Kings includes the history of the northern nation, even though he's not writing to any northern people. He's writing to Judean exiles. Because one of his messages to those Judean exiles is, be different than Israel. Learn your lesson. Learn the lesson. 
The same can be said to us. Let's not be like Israel. Let's learn the lessons that God has for us. Amen? Well, at this point, instead of continuing to Israel's next king, the author pauses to discuss the end of a great man in Israel during these difficult times, Elisha. Verse 14. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face. And he said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Here we see that Joash comes to visit Elisha on his deathbed. Crazy. It's been 43 years. I mean, I haven't been teaching for 43 years, but it's been 43 years of Israeli history since we've heard from Elisha. Last time we heard from him was 43 years prior. We have no record of anything that Elijah did during those decades. Whatever he'd been doing, the story of his life is coming to an end. Elisha is around 80 years old at this time. It says that he was fallen sick. He'd, become, he'd fallen ill or become ill or diseased with a terminal illness. And word of the great prophet's terminal disease reaches King Joash. He leaves Samaria to visit Elisha. And when he sees him on his bed, he's got this terminal disease. He just becomes incredibly emotional. He's brokenhearted. It says that he bent over the bed and, and wept over his face. His face right close to Elisha's, tears streaming down his own face. I read this, and it's such a disconnect. I'm like, this is a guy that God just told us did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Why is he so emotional over the prophet? Why such an emotional response from a wicked man? This reaction to seeing Elijah, this emotional reaction, and then his words, my father, oh my, oh father, my father. I mean, I've gone to visit people in the hospital as a pastor, and you know, you see them, and you're like, they are likely going home. You know, when you're there with the family, you see their tears, and yes, that's emotional, but I'm not, I'm not over the bed, you know, my face in their face, and weeping, and going, oh, my mother, my mother, my, you know, I'm not saying any of that, you know, I'm, I'm not acting like that now. On the other hand, my grandfather went home to be with the Lord, and I was in the hospital with my family. I lost it. Different, right? These two have to know each other well for this kind of reaction. I wouldn't treat a stranger, even an important one, this intimately, and nor would I call him my father. Now, their close relationship shouldn't be a surprise. Elisha was very involved with Ahab and his sons. Elisha loved Ahab and his sons. He advised them even though they didn't listen most of the time. And so I, it's not a far stretch to presume that Elisha probably filled the same role for Jehu and his sons. Comes to him and he's just broken. And he says, my father, oh my, oh my father, my father the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. That phrase means you're the real strength of our nation. You're the one who's been protecting us, keeping us safe all these years. You're better than any army we have. It's always been interesting to me, and I always say this because I have a platform. It's always been interesting to me how some of my harshest critics, people have been the most nasty to me, are the ones that also come to me when things go really bad. 
you've probably experienced that too. Maybe you have that coworker who's just always giving you a hard time, and then they find out their spouse has cancer or their kid's in the hospital, and they're like, hey, can you please pray? You're like, get the text, and you're like, I thought you hate me. <laughs> Stubborn pride is it's foolish. It makes us blind to common sense, to the people who care for us the conscience God gave us. I believe as Joash is sitting here with Elisha, he knows what he's supposed to be doing. I don't think it's like Joash is walking around going, you know, I wish I just knew how to be a better king. I wish, you know, I wish this guy would have told me how to be a better king. You know, I wish I, I would know what God wants me to do. I highly doubt that. But his pride, like us, makes it convenient to forget those things on a day-to-day basis. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, says this. It says, only by pride comes contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. By pride, literally what that means comes nothing but contention. Like the result of my pride is always going to be contention with those around me, even those who love me the most. Have you ever found yourself making an argument that even you don't believe in that much? You're like, yeah, I'm already halfway in the hole. I got to keep digging, (laughs) right? (laughs) I'm already all in. I took the steps, you know. There's no no back in the truck off the cliff. We're, We're already over. Crazy how we are sometimes. The reason we stick to our guns is because we don't want to yield ground to somebody else. We're messed up. (laughs) Life is so much less complex for me when I'm humble. So much less complex. It's easy to go to your kid and just say, hey, I blew it. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? So much better than stomping around in your room. Yeah, but they da 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 da. Elisha is a much better man than me, but I know how I would have felt if I heard this guy say these words. You see, Elisha had cried these words out himself when his mentor Elijah was taken into heaven. As Elijah is taken up in the whirlwind, and Elisha. It's gone. He's, he's, he's his master's is gone. His mentor's gone. And he, he said, my father, my father, the chariot, the horseman of Israel, what am I going to do now? What are we going to do now? Who will lead us now? That's kind of what Joash is lamenting here. Who's going to lead us now? You, you've been the real leader. What are we going to do now? Well, the answer to the king's question is, the one that Elijah found and what made him a a leader who was worthy to replace Elijah. When Elisha walked away, he was able to move in the same spirit and power as Elijah did because he trusted the Lord like Elijah did and he followed the Lord like Elijah did. And so, as the king laments this, you know, what are we going to do now? You're the real leader here. Elisha gives a gift to the king before he dies. And his gift is this. You need to start listening to the Lord for yourself, Joash. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now. 
He says to him in verse 15, Take bow and arrows. And so the king, he took unto him bow and arrows. He said to the king of Israel, Put your hand upon the bow. And he put it, the king puts his hands on the bow, and Elijah puts his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And so the king opens the window. Eastward, remember, that's, that's facing the Jordan River. That's, that's the Israeli land that was now under control of Syrians for the last 50 years. Two and a half tribes worth of land. And he says, shoot. So the king shot. And Elijah said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you shall smite the Syrians in Aphek till you have consumed them. He pulls the bow back and Elijah says, I'm going to do this one with you. And they shoot the arrow. What an amazing promise God gives to this wicked man. Aphak is a city in the Golan Heights just east of the Sea of Galilee. He says, Joash, even though you still haven't repented, I'm gonna rest- God's going to restore all the lost territory to the Transjordan, of the Transjordan to you. God was seeking to draw this king to repentance with kindness. What Elisha is saying to the king is he's saying, trust the Lord, Joash just like I, did, I have trusted him. Follow the Lord like, Eli, like I have followed him. God's heart's towards you. He wants to bless you. I think that's one of the most important things that we need to choose to believe as Christians. Do you believe that God's heart is toward you? It is. Do you believe that he wants to bless you? Not that he has to bless you, but that he wants to bless you. He does. The next part can be a bit confusing, but I want you to consider one difference as we read. Elisha does not join hands with the king in the next part. In other words, this is a part you're going to do on your own, Joash. You need to seek the Lord yourself before you act. So verse 18, next set of instructions. Elijah says, take the arrows. The king took them. Elijah says to the king of Israel, smite upon the ground. So take the arrows, and the word smite here, it means it's the same word to destroy. Wreck your arrows. Just pound them into the ground, man. Wreck your arrows into the ground. And it tells us the king smote three times, and then he stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have smitten five or six times. Then you would have smitten Syria till you had consumed it, whereas now you shall smite Syria but thrice. These arrows are not going to be of any use to the king if he smashes them into the ground a ton of times. He's probably thinking, I didn't bring these arrows for show. You know, it'd be like telling somebody, hey, fire, fire shots into the ground. And you're thinking to yourself, I carry this with me for a reason. I'm going to save myself a few shots. Wrecking all my arrows probably isn't the smartest plan. But that's the kind of thinking that made Joash a wicked king who doesn't consult with the Lord, doesn't even ask the man in front of him who hears from the Lord. He figures three times is enough to do what Elijah said, but still leave me with usable arrows. And that upsets Elijah. In fact, it says he was furious. Now, if you're like me, a casual reading of this kind of leaves you with the thought, Elijah, you didn't tell him how many times to strike the arrows. Why are you so mad, bro? You're grumpy old get-off-my-lawn dude. Guy's not a mind reader. But I think 
I think that's the entire point. Elisha's not going to be around to tell him the details from now on. So is Joash going to continue to just half obey God's commands? Is, is all this weeping not going to result in any change? You know what, are you just going to kind of always hold back and reserve a little bit to ensure that if God fails, I still got some bullets in my gun? That would be upsetting to me too if I knew this man. You call me father, but you ignore my advice. You cry because I'm dying, but you're not going to live like I taught you to. So this is a kind of a final straw, broken-hearted kind of anger at the king's refusal to change. And yet, Elisha gives the king one more lesson and explains what the king did wrong. He says, instead of going all in to trust God's goodness, Joash, you held back. You leaned on yourself. And that type of decision-making is not going to defeat Syria for good because you can't defeat Syria for good on your own. Verse 20, so Elisha died and they buried him. Buried here is a very loose term. It can mean to place a body in a tomb or put him in the ground. It's interesting to me that there's no mention of the nation mourning Elisha. They might have. But the writer tends to mention things like that when they made like a special mourning, or if they didn't, like they said, they didn't bury him with his fathers because they didn't like him. This serves as a reminder to us that being loved or celebrated isn't a promise that God gives to his servants. Our reward isn't here. We're looking and living for a city whose builder and maker is God. And so we say goodbye to one of the most influential prophets in the Bible. He's one of the few people in the Bible who remains faithful to the Lord to the very end. Let's be like Elisha in that way. Amen? Whether his death is mourned by the nation or not, this amazing man's impact does last beyond his life. (laughs) Some of you have read ahead. Spoilers. It does last beyond his life. In fact, we've benefited from in our study of his life. But a certain individual, a certain Israeli, had a more immediate benefit. Verse 20, and the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. At the start of the year, bands here refers to like paramilitary groups who steal or plunder. They would raid the Israeli villages. If you remember, the Moabites rebelled in the days of Ahab's son, but He crushed them so thoroughly. Remember their king sacrificed his own son on the city wall to his God? So Moab is in a bad spot. But that was 60 years ago. The Moabites have started to rebuild their nation, and Israel was too weak to deal with them. So it says at the start of the year, they would start sending in these raiding parties to Israel. And Elijah is buried right about the same time these invasions occur. And so we see here, it came to pass, verse 21, as they, not they, the raiders, this is some unknown group of Israelis, they're burying a man, that behold, they spied one of these raiding parties, a band of men. And so instead of finishing the burial, they throw this guy's corpse into Elisha's tomb. And when the man was let down, let down is a bad translation, it just means when it was placed into the tomb, It says, it touched the bones of Elijah, and the guy came back to life, and he stood on his feet. (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) When you would bury someone in an above-ground tomb, uh, the body would be placed on a slab, 
And then when the body decayed, they would go in later and the bones would then be placed into these cutout sections of the tomb as their final resting place. So these were usually family tombs, but it, maybe this was a special tomb for the prophets. doesn't tell us. But this close to his burial, his initial death, or his, his death, his decaying body would still be on the slab. So when these Israelis kind of frantically toss their comrade's body into Elijah's tomb so they can escape the raiders, something glorious happens. It says when this other guy's corpse makes contact with Elijah's corpse, then he just <gasps> pops back up and stands on his feet. Now, before we get into the how of this, let's just pause for a second to recognize what an awesome thing this was. Whether this was a family member or a friend, they had lost him, and now he's back. Most of us, most of us have lost family and friends. Most of humanity will not experience a second chance to do life with those people on earth. So this is an amazing thing. Not only that, I'm glad the guy stood up instead of just started to breathe again or moaned because he's going to need to get running with the rest of them <laughs> if he wants to stay alive. But what a joy it must have been to reach the end of the run. You look back and you're like, who's that dude? It's Bob. You're crazy. It's Bob. All of a sudden, Bob's there and he's like, why'd you guys leave me in the tomb? <laughs> I think we usually spend more time on trying to figure out how it happened than ponder the reality that it did happen. That's the author's focus for sure, otherwise he'd have given us a better explanation. With all the bad things that were going on in Israel, God was still there and he still wanted to help. I wish we knew more of this guy's story or his companion's story, but maybe it's better we don't. Maybe it's just better just knowing that God is gracious and kind. Now, we're, of course, left with the question, why did God pick this guy and his companions? I mean, clearly God doesn't do this for everyone and didn't do it for everyone else in Israel back then and certainly doesn't do it for those we've lost. Hasn't, I should say. He can, but he hasn't. Why? Why, why this guy? Why this group of people? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know this. When we're home with the Lord... Neither your loved one who is gone, or you, or anyone else will disagree with God's decision. That I do know. I would say even a loved one who is lost will bend the knee and recognize God's righteous and fair decisions. Well, it does leave us with the why. Why did contact with Elijah's bones bring this guy back to life? Well, I can assure you it's not because the prophet's bones have healing powers. We are not going to construct a type of uh, ossuary here where you can touch the bones if you're sick. I'm not sharing any of my bones. Well, I can assure you it's not because of that. This is all the Lord, independent of Elijah or Elisha's body. Maybe God used Elisha's bones because... These people knew who Elijah was. Maybe they knew Elisha. Maybe it reminded them to listen to what Elijah had taught them. I don't know, but whatever the reason was, God wanted his people to connect this miracle with Elijah's ministry, which brings us back to Elijah's legacy. 
What have we learned from our connection to Elisha? Are we trusting Elisha? Like, uh, trusting God like Elisha trusted God? Are we following the Lord like Elijah followed the Lord? The king doesn't. I'll just read this real quick because we are out of time. But Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz, and the Lord was gracious unto them. He had compassion on them and had respect unto them. Respect there, it means he turned toward them. Why? Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he did not want to destroy them, neither did he cast them from his presence as yet. God didn't forget his promises to the patriarchs. He didn't forget their love for him. He longed to stay close to Israel despite their refusal to honor their promises. And so even though God would have been fully justified to do what he told them he would do, if they didn't respond to his discipline, he doesn't drive them out of the promised land. Instead, he fulfills his word through Elijah, verse 24. So Haziel, king of Syria, died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his stead. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again, or recovered out of the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times did Joash beat him and recovered the cities of Israel just like Elisha told the king. If you're in exile in Babylon and you're, you're reading this, they knew that the as yet of verse 23 eventually became, it happened. Because it happened to them too. But the author is making it clear to those exiles that God doesn't do that until every other merciful attempt to turn the nations around has failed. You cannot read this book and conclude, God isn't merciful, God isn't fair, God isn't good, God doesn't care. You just can't, not and be honest with yourself. God's character remains constant. God is faithful to His covenant promises. The only character that needs to be examined for flaws is my own. So how about it? Are you being faithful to your commitment to Jesus? Are you following Him? Are you living in a way that's worthy of His faithfulness to you. Let's all stand. Lord, You're good. Your love never fails. And Lord, You're so merciful. So tonight, Lord, we, we choose to believe that You're a good God, that You're merciful, You're kind. And Lord, we're not going to listen to the enemy who says, no, you need to get back on your treadmill and earn God's favor. We're going to receive Your forgiveness. If we have sins to confess, Lord, we just pour our hearts out to you right now and we ask you to forgive us. Wash us, cleanse us, change us. And we thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.